This is episode six of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and let's get it started. Hey gang, and welcome to episode six of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco. Thanks again for being along in this journey, and happy new year. Um, can't believe a new year is already here, and the years just keep fluttering by, it seems. Um, can everyone remember the uh, the Y2K craze? You know, the computers were going to you know, crash, and the world was going to end. Can you guys believe that was 18 years ago? That's just crazy where the, uh, where the time goes, but... You know, I want you guys to think and, and have that fresh perspective on things as we roll in new year. Hopefully, if you guys have set some of your goals up that you're going to try to achieve this year. But one of the words I really want to stress, and I haven't stressed it too much in previous episodes, is the word opportunity. Because really, opportunity is a mindset. I like to think about it. You know, you can certainly be negative and the glass half empty and, you know, think of all, all these things as, ah, I got to do this or I got to do that. But if you think of it as opportunities, you know, opportunities to say, man, I get to do that. I get to, you know, uh, whatever, try out that new thing or go to that conference or whatever it might be. And it kind of reminded me of a quote back when I was teaching golf that one of my students actually mentioned to me. And it's from Thomas Edison. And it says, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. And that's something that always stuck with me because, you know, that's how I like to think of things. Is I'm a glass half full guy. I'm very positive if, if you can't tell by some of the previous episodes. But I really think opportunity is such a thing that, you know, especially going into this new year, if you take that perspective on things and that every new thing that you could potentially do, you think of it as an opportunity to learn more or to meet new people or whatever it may be, if you take that approach it's amazing what you know what can become. So I really want you guys to have that mindset as you roll into the new year early on, especially, and try to stay focused on, hey, I'm going to look at everything as an opportunity, and I'm not going to pass up. You can certainly say no to things. I'm not saying you have to do everything. But be open-minded to new things, and you'll be amazed how some of the doors it may open for you. Well, so that's a nice transition, I think, into our guest today. Um, who I had the privilege of speaking to up-and-coming comedian Erica Spira, and her last name is spelled S-P-E-R-A. And I actually knew Erica growing up, knew her family well, and she's one of those folks early on in this podcast that I I wanted to have as a guest, so I was appreciative that she uh, kind of agreed to it with her busy schedule because I've been following her for a little over a year now with her kind of comedic journey, and I wanted to get this backstage access to all the struggles, all the kind of grunt work, all the different things that go into being a comedian. Because as you know, there's a lot of them out there. So how do you kind of move up the ranks and and how do you get gigs and, you know, how's the travel schedule and all that stuff. So she shared a ton of that insight in this particular interview. And I think you guys will really enjoy that perspective on things. She's just a really cool gal, um, got a great personality. And I think she's going to go far in the kind 
comedy world because going back to my comments from just a minute ago, she has that mindset, right? She has that very positive mindset that she's going to achieve greatness and she wants to achieve greatness. And I think that's where it starts. If you have that confidence in yourself, that's going to come off on stage um, and that's going to come off in other, you know, you know, avenues that she's in as she goes through a day-to-day life. So um, it's just always great to see too, you know, coming from a small town in, in upstate New York, it's great to see other folks trying to succeed, you know, trying to go for their dreams. And, uh, and that's why I, I want to chat with her as well. Cause I think she brings a lot of perspective in that regard, um, to someone just trying to make it. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview today. As always, any feedback you have, I love to hear it. My website, brianondraco.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Andreco Golf. Please don't hesitate to share comments uh, with me. Love to hear it and uh, look forward to again interacting with you as we go into 2018 and beyond. With that being said, let's jump into the interview and I hope you guys enjoy the, uh, the chat today with Erica Spira. Let's get it started. Erica, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. No, that's great. Glad to uh, get a chance to chat with you. And, uh, you know, let's start. We'll, we'll kind of get right into it here because there's a couple uh, questions I really wanted to dive into and ask you. Um, but first off, you know, so a lot of folks, obviously, that, that know you or getting to know you know that you're you're a comedian. You're in comedy. How did that start for you? I'm just kind of curious. The big, well, kind of open-ended question. We'll get it started. Like, why comedy? Why is that your your life's calling? So do you mean, why did I want to be a comic or like literally how did I start doing it? <laughs> I want both. I want both. Both? Okay. Um, I don't know. I think it's mainly why I wanted to be a comic was like with my own family, we always loved funny things and I'm from a big Italian family. So of course we watched Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, and it, I remember it was back when you had to actually record episodes on like a vhs and it was like a rule that you couldn't watch it without everybody else there um so that's what really kind of first introduced me to like funny things in comedy were like sitcoms watching with my family and then from there my dad would buy comedy cds and when we had long car rides we'd often like switch to a comedy cd to kill time and so i remember listening to ray romano was one seinfeld jim gaffigan um bill cosby <laughs> Because uh, they were all the clean comedians that he could like show us, and I was only I think ten years old when I first heard comedy, and I went to like my first live stand-up comedy show. Um, so I always loved it. I mean, anybody that's ever, I mean, pretty much everyone's made somebody laugh at some point in their life, and it is you know a good feeling. Um, and I feel like at my own dinner table every night, it'd be like if you're telling a story, it better be funny. Or, you know, then you like kind of get embarrassed, like you can't keep up with everybody else that tells, you know, funny stories. Um, so that's, I don't know, I just, I always loved it. I just thought it was the coolest thing. Like when they'd ask that question of, you know, if you could be anything in the world, what would you be? I always said comedian. And then the follow-up question is like, okay, but what do you want to do for real? <laughs> um so, like, you know, I guess, I don't know, it's kind of like how most kids will watch, like, a famous athlete, and they're like, I want to be a pro football player, or, you know, how kids watch movies, and they're like, I want to be an actor, like, I don't know, whoever they like, um, and that kind of just was comedy for me, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world, and I always liked making people laugh and being funny, pretty much however I could, so. Now, and, well, and you, you named some 
obviously some pretty iconic uh, you know comedians there in, in, in the couple you reeled off. Was there a was there one that stands out? I mean, in, in terms of kind of you know both past and present, I guess um, you know your biggest influence in terms of that. You know, maybe your style currently, or you know your approach to comedy. Is there someone you like more than another? Um, hmm. It's funny because often like styles that you once you start doing comedy, the styles of comedy I really admire are typically ones that I feel like I can't do because it's like. I don't know. You just watch it and you're like, uh, like I could never do that. But I'd say, yeah, definitely listening to a lot of clean comedy is what really kind of geared me towards being a clean comic because I mean, I I just kind of like, I experienced comedy with like my whole family. So it's kind of weird to me to essentially put together an act. Somebody couldn't like take their family to, to see, Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, I loved sharing it with my family that I don't know. It just would kind of, I don't know. It's kind of like, that's the thing that kind of pushes me towards staying clean. Is it like, Oh, it's nice to be able to do that with your parents. It's kind of similar to movies. It's like, if you're only acting in R rated movies or whatever, it's like, Oh, you know, I guess like someone couldn't enjoy this with their family. Um, in terms of material, I do, I'd say I do kind of mimic more of a Ray Romano than a Seinfeld because Seinfeld is so observational, which is great. And, you know, he's like timeless. A lot of his comedy bits still hold up, you know, 30 years later because they're often just about social cues. Um, but material wise, I, I think I'm just similar to Ray Romano because I talk about my family a lot on stage. And so does his. And it's something that I hope with my material, it would hold up for years and years. Um, kind of like his does. Like I listened to, he only has one CD. I think it's live at Carnegie hall. I listened to it like four months ago. And it's like, the only thing is like, there's something he mentions that has to do with like a landline phone. But other than that, everything else is like true to this day. Like I was cracking up in the car. So that's kind of, to me, the hardest comedy to try to achieve is like, Oh, can I put out an album and it's still good. 10 years later, you know, or God forbid 20, like, um, I feel like I danced around that question. No, no, no. That's well. And you know, actually I, one, I appreciate is that, you know, you, listen, there are so many things that can pull you, you know, everyone in a variety of different yeah. directions that you're, st- you stayed in your lane though and said, Hey, this is, I want to do clean comedy. I want to, you know, so families can go together. I, I think that's really great. Um, and, you know, like I said, you got to know who you are. And there's an, I think there's enough audience for all of that. But, well, it's actually funny. So you mentioned something about Seinfeld. And, and he was one of, you know, besides a variety, of, you know, George Carlin and some authors growing up. George Carlin, not, not clean, as you know. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, it's interesting. I saw this Netflix documentary, Seinfeld, that I think he put it out recently or whatever. Um, yeah, this it, year. That's right. And none of the jokes. What's that? Yeah, and then none of the jokes in it are new except for he adds a little to some of them. Mm-hmm. Like he has a joke he talks about subway versus um, you know taking a taxi, and then he adds a bit that's about Uber. But like what? other than that, it's like the bit was still from like thirty years ago. Yeah, well, and, and that kind of you no, know, and, and that's great. Yeah, it's, a lot of the you know the extent as you're saying with Ray Romano, like some of that stands the test of time, and you know it's just again that you could relate to it and stuff like that. You know, it's interesting though on that Netflix, and this kind of transitions a little bit for us, but I'm always curious on, and and maybe this is you can let people into the minds of a of a comic. Like, how do you get 
the different gigs you're doing or comedy shows. Like he mentions in there about the first one. Like he, I think it was an open mic night. He just wrote his name in there and got up on stage and they liked him. So they invite him back the next night or whatever. And he became a regular there. How does that, how does that work? Is it, is it similar where you just kind of go to open mic nights? Do you get invited places? How, how do you, how do you get to these different gigs that you're doing right now around New York city and otherwise? Um, okay. So I'll start at the beginning, I guess. Um, well, the thing is until you get a manager or an agent of sorts, like whether it's a tour agent or something, um, essentially every gig you get is going to be, usually from another comedian booking you. So whether it's they've done the gig before and they need a recommendation for another comic or say they're headlining the show. So they maybe ask you to host it for them or open for them. Um, like especially a lot of random little middle of nowhere rooms. Like I'm doing my first New Year's Eve gig, which is a big night for comedy in Goldsboro, Pennsylvania which is the middle of nowhere. And whoever was booking the show, of course, had no idea who I was, but the headliner got booked and they needed an opener. And so it's not much money for somebody that like has a comedy central half hour or a Netflix special. So then it's really relying on the network of comedians. That's like, okay, who can somehow travel, you know, two and a half hours to Goolsboro PA. So like, hopefully they have a car or can hitch a ride with somebody um, you know, and only do it for like, I don't know, like $200. Uh, so it's like that kind of thing is it's always booked by other comedians. So that's often why when one comedian suddenly starts making it like Adam Sandler, all of a sudden you see like in all his movies, all those other actors are other comedians and they're people he came up with. So it's like they were doing the shitty middle of nowhere gigs together for years and we're good friends. Cause it's like, I mean, if you're going to drive six hours in a day in a car, it's like, look, you want the person with you to be funny, but almost more importantly, you want to be able to be in a car with them for six hours. So that's kind of like most industries of like job interviews, how half the time it's like, do do the people like you? Would they want to be stuck in an elevator with you? (laughs) Or, you know, if you work production, that's like 12 hour days. Um, So that part's kind of similar to regular life of like, oh, it's often who you know. But when you really, really first start and you're not getting booked at all, it's like, yeah, you're typically just doing open mic nights. And it's crazy because I'm from Binghamton, New York, and I never knew that there was an open mic in Binghamton, New York. But there is. There's a handful of people that like comedy. And um, I've seen I've performed to a couple of them in Binghamton and they're pretty funny. And they just do once a week. They have an open mic night and it's typically other comedians that are there. But in smaller towns you know, comedy is more rare. So people will go to the open mic night. And so you'll be up there trying stuff for the very first time in front of real people, which is partly great, but then also partly bad because the point of open mics is to get better and try new stuff and maybe take risks. So the funny thing is I really started in New York city. So when I started, it was only other comedians in the room and they are the toughest critics So the bright side is like when you do get them to laugh a little bit, you're like, okay, there's something with that. Or sometimes it translates to if this room laughs a little bit, if I did it in a room of we call them real people, (laughs) um, like it would really kill. But then sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes comedians like very dark and edgy humor that's almost like on the line of like, oh, that's kind of messed up or like sick. So sometimes you'll do a joke in an open mic and it kills and then you do it in front of a real audience and they're they just they're like this just feels sad. <laughs> so, uh, 
I mean, that's really what I did when I first started was um, I took a class because I had no idea what an open mic even was. And I happened to be in New York for an internship and I was looking up comedy stuff. So I took a class that was like a eight week class and we only met once a week and it was a very supportive environment. Everybody there was new, you know, so you got to go up and try five minutes and there was a teacher that gave you a little feedback. And then at the end of the class, you do like a big graduation show at Gotham Comedy Club. So I did that. And the cool thing was, is when I was doing the class, they started telling us about open mics. So that's when I started going and, you know, working on my like little five minutes for the show. Um, But the nice thing for me, the best part about it was one, I got to make some other friends in comedy that were also new and like very not judgmental. Um, So I had people to go to open mics with so I didn't feel so alone. And then the second thing was like my whole family came to the graduation show and I did well, thank God, because it kind of was a nice way to show them like this is kind of what I want to do. But it's in like a nice comedy club, like it has a good host, Um, you know, Jim Gaffigan dropped in at the end. So it was like, oh, okay, they it makes you seem more legit, even though it's like. Look, most of the times I'm in the back of a bar performing for three people like tonight. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is brutal. <laughs> hey, ebbs and flows. You got to go with the, the, the ups and downs there. Do, do, you, yeah. do you remember your the first joke you wrote? Oh, man. Um, I'm trying to think. I I have the tape of like my very first show and set. Um, and I don't ha- I don't do any of the jokes from it. But one thing was like our teacher was like a lot of times it's good to have a quick like opener off the top because it gets people to laugh quick and they're like, okay, you're funny. And it kind of gets them on your side. Uh, So I I remember trying to think of an opener and the opener I came up with was, um, you know, I just graduated college. So I was like, oh, like this is crazy that I'm doing this. Like I went to college thinking I wanted to be a dentist like my dad. Uh, but then he just kept putting so much pressure on me to do stand up comedy was like my first opener, which is so cheesy and whatever. Like it's, but you know, it worked. It got people to laugh or also, you know, my family that was there, it's like they were a little relieved or they especially understood the joke because they know my father and know that he's a dentist. And of course, he would have loved it if I became a tennis. Well, sure. well, sure. No, no, that's good. Well, it kind of, you know, sets the crowd, I guess, uh, gets their guard down a little bit. You, you open with something like that. Um, right. what, what goes into building a set of jokes? Like, and, 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 and I'm curious, too, is um, if you can answer, because I've always wondered this is how much like and I, we'll go back I'm going to I might put a pin in this for a second. No, let, let's let's talk about this and then I'll go into something else. Uh, but picks on one of your things I saw on YouTube that you did at um I think it was Gotham. Um but what is the in terms of the mixture of all the jokes you do and then in terms of ad lib type stuff? What would you say the percentages of of actual you've written it, you've practiced it to the you're kind of playing off and feeding off the crowd? Mm, that's a good question. Um it often depends on the show and the environment. Um, and it also depends on what kind of comic you are. There's some people that they just go up like Bill Burr to this day. He mainly does. Okay. This is the concept. These are the big punches I need to get to. And every night, like if you saw his, you know, him do 
you know, two back-to-back club weekends, or even in the same weekend, if you went to the Friday show and the Saturday show, it would essentially be the same of the things that are really making you laugh and hitting, but the, like, in-between fluff is going to be a little bit varied. Uh, So that's, like, his style, is it's never going to be exactly the same show. But he said, you know, he's someone that, Coming up, he was like, I wasn't nearly as funny as I was when I would try to fully write something and then go up there and perform it because it didn't feel like organic to me. But then there's other people like I'm more written heavy that I it struggled to kind of be like, OK, uh, uh, let me talk about like, I don't know, say, let me talk about like going to summer camp. And I'm like, OK, there's these two things that happen. Let me like try to work a bit around that. Um but I think that also is because if you're more my mine is more like story kind of because it's about my own life um, that a lot of times it's like you got to work through like, OK, what's the general story? What's the beginning? What's the end? What are punches that I can kind of put in in between that keeps people's attention and keeps them laughing? Um, so in general, a set, it's like I find in, in New York, there's so many comics and stage time is already like such a battle to even get. And then once you start getting into clubs, the thing is when you first get into clubs and you have an audition at clubs, it's like, they'll give you six minutes, maybe seven. And that's like, we call like a tight set. Like a, it's like, you you call it like your tight five is like when you do a late night set, it's only five minutes. So it's like, you gotta, you know, be having laughs every like 20 seconds. Um, so when you go in New York and you first get up at a club, like, you have to go in and you have to be guns blazing and you have to be like, bam, 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 like killing, like consistent and hard hitter. So when you do that, it's like, there's no room for fluff or I guess improvising is what you'd call it. Um, but then the number one rule that no matter your environment is like, if you're on stage and like someone knocks over a glass and it's loud, like you have to address it in some way. Like you don't have to make fun of the person that knocked over the glass, but the whole attention shifts to the noise in the room. So if you don't point it out, like suddenly you look like, I don't know, you're not as skilled. Like you're not much as much of a pro because you can't like stray away from your set. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Cause it, like I said, it often depends on the crowd. Like some crowds want you to really interact with them. And then other crowds, you could just be like, Oh, you know, round of applause, anybody married? And like, they will just give you death stares and they don't want to participate at all. <laughs> so, well, that's um, what you're talking about. That's where you, you, you know, again, trying to get like, you know, do you play off that or do you kind of move on and, and you got to read the room, I guess. And that's why every night, but that's probably part of the thrill though too, right? Is that you don't know really what you're getting into when you go on stage. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Like, especially if, you know, you're running around from one show to another show, if you're not there for the entire show watching, you don't know, like, you don't know the dynamic of the room. You don't know, like, did they get touchy at this? Or was it like, you know, so it's always good to try to ask whoever was hosting the show, like, hey, you know, is there anybody people did crowd work with already? Like, anything I should avoid? Um, like, it's really nice when you walk into a show and a host comes up and is like, hey, listen, you know, guy front row right on your left, really drunk, like, don't talk to him. Some people have talked to him and it just, like, it goes nowhere and it's bad. Like, they'll be like, ignore him. Um, cause I've been in some terrible situations that it's like, all of a sudden it's almost like you're a band or you're just a CD playing. And it's like, you just have to power through your set over like, say half the room that's talking and not paying attention. It's just like, 
well, you either can get mad or you can just perform for the other half that are paying attention. Um, mm. But all those situations is it's like, that's the, that's the reason like nobody really makes it in comedy when they've only done it a couple of years because like every show I do, especially outside of the city, you like learn a new trick or you learn like a new scenario. Um, I did a show once it was like poorly lit and they dimmed the lights and I was completely in the dark and I was hosting and nobody introduced me as a host. Like they were like, we're just going to cut the music and you go up there and you're just, you're just trying to be like easy to work with. You're like, okay. Uh, and it was just awful. Like I had to battle the whole time. No one could see me. Like it was just bad. The room setup was bad. Everything was bad. And I did like, okay. But it was something that afterwards the, you know, two comics on the show with me have been doing it much longer. They were like hiding in the back. And then they were like, wait, nobody brought you on stage. I'm like, no. And then they're like, and this, and this, and this, and this. And I said, no. And they were like, okay. A lot of times these rooms have never had comedy. They don't know how to run a show. Like they're not telling you, they're kind of like feeling you out of, is this okay? So like a lot of times you can be like, Hey, just have somebody go up there and be like, Hey, we're going to start the show. I'm going to bring up your host, like Erica Spira, just to get everybody paying attention. So they're like all these little tricks and stuff you learn that it's like, oh, okay, now that I know most of the time when you're outside of the city or like at a random VFW doing a show, the people there want comedy, but they just, they don't understand like all these little things that go into it, like a spotlight or, you know, I don't know, just, just simple things about like the lighting. And so a lot of times like they're more than happy to accommodate little things you say because they're just like, oh yeah, no, fine. We could do that. Like. They're like, we're just excited you're here. <laughs> so, well, and uh, that's good. Well, actually, that's a good transition because I think, you know, always of learning and absorbing and trying to, you know, being curious and, and trying to improve. It actually, it's, I'll take the flip side approach to that a little bit is, so go back to that show I saw on YouTube. And by the way, was Cheech and Chong hosting, I think? Was that right? I think. Oh, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did like Access TV has a little comedy show and they always get a celebrity host. So. Mine was Cheech and Chong, which nice. is really cool. Yeah. So, well, I was reading in the com- – I don't know if you like to read the comments of stuff. I just got like to get a flavor of like human beings. It's it's almost like people watching at the mall, but like the book version. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? But, <laughs> so do you read a lot of the comments online like after a show? Like if you if it's something like that where it's on YouTube or whatever, like do you, does it motivate you? Do you? Does it help you, you know, adjust things? I, you know, I'm just kind of curious if, if you're kind of a, a reader of comments um, since you know everyone has digital muscles these days. Uh, well, it's something like, I'm in no way famous, but I remember reading like magazines growing up and, or seeing like little interviews of people on TV and they would often be asked kind of the same thing of like, oh, do you read with the, did you see this in the tabloids? Did you see this? And whatever people are trying to poke at them about rumors. And a lot of times celebrities are like, no, I don't read that stuff. And it's something that part of you is like sitting there as a regular person, like, Oh, come on. Aren't you like a little curious? Like you see yourself on a cover of a magazine with a fake rumor. You don't want to pick it up and read it. Um, and that's kind of the thing about YouTube comments of like, uh, I don't personally really go through and look at comments of videos that I have because, uh, I basically know that it's like, it's like Yelp reviews. It's like, look, if someone's really driven to write something, they either loved it or they hated it. Like, there's rarely middle ground, um, or this isn't like Yelp, but when you're a woman and you do comedy, the majority of people on YouTube are men. So more often than not, people are just commenting about your appearance. Like I did a couple roast battles and 
some of them went well and like some of them I didn't do well. But whether I did well or not, like the comments on these things, because they're actually watched by a lot of people, are brutal. Like I looked through it once and I was like, I can't, I can't read these comments. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it just like, it's, I don't know. It just, I mean, it's not that it hurts. It's just more, the worst thing is I'm like, I would rather have somebody call me fat than call me unfunny in the comments. Like when people don't think I'm funny, that irks me so much more. Well, I guess. Yeah. That's, just... it's like, that's the part I was working on up there. I wasn't, wasn't working on being pretty. Um, and what makes you feel better is often I have friends that have done, you know, Conan, they've done the tonight show. They, They've had sets on TV that are on YouTube that are amazing. I think they're absolutely amazing, the funniest things. And I look through the comments, and it's like, oh, there's people trashing this. It's like, well, the people are just dumb. <laughs> like, yeah, I get you. Yeah, no, you're right. Everyone has to, like I said, everyone has to have their two cents. And, well, everybody you know, has an opinion. That's yeah, right. exactly. Which is why it's like the comics that truly, you know, are famous and make it. It's like they usually hit a point that like they will do well in any room, in any situation, whether it's like young 20 year olds, whether it's a room of 60 year olds, like, so the idea is like, you're trying to work towards building an act that, you know, works in any room that you don't have to do the like, Oh, it's 22 year olds. Well, let me do my jokes about my iPhone or, Oh, it's 60 year olds. Let me just do my jokes about my parents. It's like, well, I should be able to do jokes about an iPhone and parents to both demographics if they're good enough. You know? Yeah, I got you. You know, you mentioned you know gender earlier. Do you, do you think that is that an obstacle to overcome? Do you think? I mean, in terms of comedy, you know, it's and I look at it, you know, growing up and stuff. It's you know generally male dominated. I don't know if it still is. You tell me in terms of like the the comedy world. But is that an obstacle at all? Do you think, or is it something else? Maybe in terms of obstacles that you have to overcome, um, kind of day to day. Well, it's like me personally. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an obstacle, but it's more like. Every type of person, if you do comedy, you're going to have a challenge. But it's more like it's weird because right now it's like it's very I have many friends that are very funny and they don't have a manager because they will meet with a manager and the manager says, listen, there's not a lot of stuff going on for straight white guys. They're like the market's too oversaturated, straight white guys. TV shows want diversity. They don't want white people like, you know, even though I think you're funny, I, I don't have any work for you. So it's like, so right now, being a straight white guy, there's actually a lot of negative things when it comes to, like, trying to get casted and stuff. Um, the stand-up world in general is always dominated by straight white guys because there just are more straight white guys that do it or, you know, straight black guys. Um, but it's like anybody who's anything that's not a straight white guy, so it's like whether you're a black male comic, a black female comic, a white female comic, uh, an Asian comic, male or female Indian, like, a lot of times what's hard is, you know, I'm at the point right now, it's like, okay, if somebody said, name, I don't know, name 10 funny female comics in New York City, like, I'd be more than honored, obviously, to be on this list. I'm not saying everybody's saying this, but it's something that, like, until you really, it's like your challenge is more, I don't want people to think of me when someone says, oh, we want, we need a, we need a woman on this show who's a funny woman. And then they're like, oh, Erica Spear is really funny. It's like my goal is when someone's like, oh, you know, you know, any kind of gig, any show where they're just like, oh, like they do the show and they're just kind of like, hey, you know who you should book? You should book Erica Spear. She's really funny. Like without being prompted of being a woman. So I think it's kind of whatever category you're in, it's very hard to break out of that bracket, I'd call it. 
because it's like there are so many comedians that if someone said to me, name your favorite, you know, five black comics, I could name you five black comics, you know, or even you could say straight white dudes. So it's like, but who are the people if you just said name five Name five of your funny comics right. Uh, name five of your favorite comedians right now. It's like who's gonna make my top five? Because when I go by that, I just go based on who I think is really funny. Um, well, that's how it should be too. You know, <laughs> I think you and well, I are on the same page. That's how it should be. I just, I'm just curious of like when you're actually in there, like people. are And you mentioned some of this stuff. It's you know, as, as people are booking different talents or whatever it might be, you know, that comes up. I think that's in our general world today, but I'm just curious well, if, if you experience is, that. There's good to it and then there's bad to it. So it's like, cause I've, I've booked my own shows. Like I run a weekly show in New York and it's run by, it's, we're all women. So we try to be like, look, we shouldn't be another show that only has one woman on the lineup every week. Cause it's like, you know, why are we doing what everybody else is doing? Like, we don't want it. Like, why are women competing for one spot kind of thing? Um, like we're like, if anything, it should be like the straight white male spot. You got to be really good for us to book you in that spot. Cause there's hundreds of you, you know, is that, um, the, is that that 607 comedy that you're doing? Uh, no, that's, that? that shows I do outside of New York. I do little, um, shows. Those are actually typically like fundraisers. I help put together, um, different organizations and stuff. So that's when I'm in Binghamton is typically those shows. Well, that's what uh, I was gonna ask too. The, the yeah. six oh seven comedy, because because you know that initiative in terms of your you giving back. There's a lot of you know I saw the kind of a nonprofit feel to it, right? You're donating, you're helping out different causes. Why was that important for you to start? Why was that uh, Why was that something you wanted to do, or how did that come about? Yeah, that's one of those things that it, it almost kind of fell in my lap. Of you know the first time, the first very first time I did a show in my hometown was I thought about you know hey it'd be cool for me to bring some of my friends home that are funny and we do a show, you know, because so many people in Binghamton would be like, come do a show. Like you should try to do a show up here, you know, cause it's, it's easier to bring three comics to Binghamton than try to bring, you know, 10 people from Binghamton to New York, put it that way. Um, so the first show I did, I just kind of was like, I went around to a couple bars that hire bands and I just was like, Hey, you know, I'm interested about doing a comedy show. Like I'd bring people to come like, you know, how do you work it out with bands? Is there a cover or do you pay the band and it's free that anybody could come and enjoy? So the first time I did it, they basically paid me as if I was a band and then I'd split the money with my friends and we, you know, we filled the place, had a free show. It was great. Um, and then, you know, the bars were kind of like, Oh, I don't know if we made enough on the bar because when the show starts, a lot of people don't move and they, you don't want to be quiet. Um, so then I changed it to like, okay, we'll just do $5 at the door so it's no money out of the bar's pocket and we fill the bar and we have a show. But then it kind of grew of like, oh, wow, we were like, you know, they all were sold out. And it was like, oh, wow, there's really a demand for comedy. And then the charity thing came from I had um, I believe it was the Minimal Dollars for Scholars was my first show that they reached out to me and they just were like, hey, you know, we have done the same fundraiser every year. We think it's kind of boring. You know, one of them just went to one of the shows I did and was like, oh, it was so funny. I think that'd be a really fun idea for a fundraiser. And then we were like, oh, okay. So we started brainstorming of like, where could we have it? You know, what conditions do you want kind of thing? Um, and even then, I mean, the biggest thing was like, I had no idea what to like pay comedians to like travel to Binghamton and do the show. Um, oh, I totally backtracked. The whole reason I did the bar show in the first place was because somebody from an after prom committee asked me to perform at the after prom. 
And those shows are always really hard and pretty awful. And, and it was my sister's prom. And I was like, oh, God, she'll hate me. So I was like, okay, if I do it, I'm not going to do it just me. Because if I just do really terrible, that's going to be bad. So I was like, let me bring up two friends to do that. And then it was like, oh, since they're coming up for that, let's try to do like another show at a bar. But that's completely sidetracked. Um, so basically I had, you know, just one person reach out to me for a fundraiser. They did the fundraiser and it was like, I got paid a little money. They made a lot of money and they were like, wow, this is the easiest fundraiser we've had to do. And it was the most money we made because like a lot of times in small towns, it's like they'll do, you know, a car wash or a bake sale or a pasta dinner and all the parents and everybody has to work it. And, you know, I was asking my dad, like, how much money do you guys typically make from like a pasta dinner? He's like, maybe $500. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you work for like four hours. You make maybe $500. Like it's a lot. Whereas a comedy show, it was like people were making two grand and all they had to do was just sell tickets to a comedy show. So it was just a thing to do. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, this is a really easy way for different groups to make money. So it basically was like, you know, you have one organization has a successful fundraiser and somebody at that fundraiser is like, well, I should do this with this group. And then it's kind of like just been a chain effect from there. So like I said, it was kind of something that fell in my lap and it's like, you know, I could try to just set up shows by myself, but then it's like all the ticket sales are on me and I don't live in Binghamton. And it's also like, you know, these were the first people that essentially hired me and paid me to even perform comedy that, you know, I feel more like a loyalty to them. And it's my hometown that it's like, I like bringing, you know, some revenue to these organizations that like helped me when I was growing up or help other people I know. Um, and it gives me a great opportunity to perform outside of New York to help get my friends, you know, some gigs. Cause I know how hard it is to hustle around and do stuff. So it's, it, that was kind of something that it fell in my lap. And the more of them I did, it was like each one I do, I always, I still learn something like the last one we did, you know, I have, I bought like a professional spotlight now, which is great, big upgrade. Uh, but we did not realize <laughs> that the background behind us was there was a window and at night, so the spotlight would reflect back on a certain part of the crowd. And it was like, shit. <laughs> and it was only, you know, like maybe like 10 people that had it in their line of view. So they had to move. But that's just like one little thing that it's like, okay, when you do the spotlight, if the background is glass or has a window, you have to make sure there's a curtain covering it. So there is no, you know, backlash from the reflection. So it's like little tiny things like that. It's like every show. The frustrating part is you almost feel like, ah, oh, why can't it ever just be perfect? But like I said, it's like, well, the more of them you do, the better they get. So you always just kind of have to take it with a grain of salt a little bit. But no, that's great. I, I, you know, that's great what you're doing. Keep up the good work. And yeah, I think being raw like that is, hey, that's good, right? Some, sometimes you have those. That, that's what makes you you or makes the, you know, kind of makes the show what it is. Um, not, not always going to be perfect, I guess. So let's, right. end up, let's end on this. What's talk me about what's what's next for you? What's kind of your maybe even what's your ultimate career goal? You know, is it just to be a and I say just to be like that? It's a pretty cool thing. But like just to be a stand up comedian to to do like Saturday Night Live. I, I personally think, by the way, there there there's opportunities for new improv shows. And I'm sure you know that. But whether yeah. it's Saturday Night Live um, or movies or you know, who knows? I mean, look at Ellen doing, you know, her, her show. She's like one of the most popular people in the world, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, but like, you know, or something. Jokers. What, Those were it? just four comedians that were good friends. Yeah. They came up with a funny show idea and like, they're killing it. They have a whole cruise that they do now. 
like in Practical Jokers Cruise. It's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, where do you see yourself? Like where ultimately, if you could kind of choose your path and sometimes, you know, some opportunities come up and you go on a different path. But right now where you're at in your life, what what would be kind of success for you um, in kind of the comedy world? Oh, man. I mean, so many things would be success. So it's hard to be like, I guess you're saying if I could pick any path to become a headlining comic or just become famous, um, which is essentially what real headlining comics are. <laughs> like, do you uh, want to do you want to do, do you want to do a Kevin Hart route? Do you want to do movies? Do you want to do like I said, do you want to do TV shows like Jimmy Fallon or Ellen? Like, or is it something totally different? I'm cu- and maybe you haven't thought about that. And that's fine. I'm just kind of curious of no, what's in your like, head there. It's more like it's it's like I more get the question of people are like, why don't you try to get on SNL? It's like, do you think I'm turning SNL down? Like, you think they're calling me? And I'm like, nah, SNL is not my style. <laughs> like, uh, so that's more what it is, is it's like, you know, I I don't have, you know, the luxury of getting to pick. Like, Kevin Hart right now can pick to do whatever the hell he wants to do because he's Kevin Hart, you know? Like, he has his own app now. He has He's putting together his own. Like, any show idea he puts together somebody's going to back it because they're like, it's Kevin Hart. People will watch it just because it's Kevin Hart. So the hard part is like, you know, essentially breaking into something, whether it's like being on SNL, whether it's just being a writer on SNL is also very hard to get. Like people don't realize all these shows like have huge writing teams and huge writing rooms. And like, there are so many, I'm trying to think, I just applied to like, it was like an NBC workshop program that it's like, so you don't get paid. But it's just like if you get into it, it helps introduce you and helps you with these like writing packets you have to put together to try to be a writer. Uh, But just to submit to this workshop, it's like they get, oh, God, they get at least 200,000 applicants and they pick 12 people. So it's like a lot of times it's, you know, it's like just. I don't know. Your career is almost like you're boiling pasta and then you just keep throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Like you're like, is this ready yet? They're like, nope. Nope, you're not good for this. Um, so it's kind of like, I mean, I, I'm in the boat of like, I'm trying everything. I haven't written off anything. I'm like, I'll go on auditions for a commercial. I'll go on auditions for just a voice character that you're like, a, you know, being a cartoon. Um, if I could personally pick, I would probably actually want to do kind of the Everybody Loves Raymond route of like, come up with a TV show idea myself that I also act in um, and I'm a main character of. So it's like either a Ray Romano or a Seinfeld where it's like, they're the comedians. They're in the show. They're clearly not the best actors on the show, but they just get surrounded by great actors that the show's amazing. So it's like, I would love to put together a show that would essentially be like their acts and be timeless that like, Oh, you could watch 10 years from now and people love, but even if it's not timeless, it's just like, to be able to have a show that you're a character on and it just gets people to kind of know who you are, that then gives you the ability to travel the world and do stand-up comedy. So it's weird because it's like, I just really love doing stand-up. And it's not that I don't like doing acting or I don't like writing or I don't like all these other things, but it's more like in order to actually be a full-time stand-up comedian and be very successful at it, you either have to be doing like corporate gigs, which are very hard to get, or you have to build a following some way. So it's like whether I started a podcast that blew up, like I don't right now, I'm like, I don't care (laughs) what it would be. Um, But if I could pick, I probably would go the TV sitcom route because I also feel like that's 
the medium of, I guess, funny things aside from stand-up comedy that I watch the most. Most Like, I like movies. Movies are great, but I'm not, like, a huge movie buff like other people are. So I would feel most comfortable or most, like, I know what I'm doing in a TV show scenario. Awesome. Well, Eric, I, and I know you're... You know, you're on the right path there because all a lot of the things you're saying too, you're kind of getting in, you're getting your hands dirty with a lot of different stuff. As you said, you had a show tonight with three people. You know, hey, sometimes you gotta do that grunt work, so to speak, and kind of get your chops. And like I said, you'll yeah. get that you'll get that break as you go through. So I'm glad you're kind of doing a lot of different stuff. And hey, those opportunities, those doors open that you know you never even expected. So. Um, maybe, yeah, we'll, maybe, we'll maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do a show about, about, uh, dental practice and some, some comedy. Yeah. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll happen someday. Who knows? Right. I'm like sure. I do a show of like, this is what my life would be if it wasn't a comedian. There you go. Exactly. Hey. Uh, but it's like, uh, I mean, the good part is like, even with just doing stamp comedy shows, like it's always good for comedians to have to do every part of it, whether it's like just booking it, producing it, hosting it, headlining it you know, being the check spot, like it's good to do all those things at one point because then you realize like one, how difficult it is Two, the annoying things it is to deal with like other people when you're in that position. Um, so like just with booking my own shows has taught me so much about like, be reliable, be on time, like don't complain, don't do this. Like, you know, so it makes people want to work with you more. And so the same kind of goes with everything else. Like I had a podcast. I haven't really done it anymore because I don't have time. And also it seemed like this is going nowhere, but having a podcast and then editing it myself and then just hearing how I was on a podcast. Oh God, oh, this is weird. Cause I'm saying this on a podcast, <laughs> like, I know, but I know like, what you, I know what you're what going about, to. What I, know I was what about you... to say was like, it made me better about being on podcast. And I'm like, someone's going to listen to this and be like, no, this woman was terrible. She was very unfunny. <laughs> Um, but it made me realize how much work goes into it. So now when I do someone else's podcast, it's like, I'm conscious of those things and hopefully would be a better guest than if I had never tried to do one myself and kind of was like, ah, what is this dumb thing? Or, you know, so that's kind of the good part too, of getting your hands dirty with everything is it makes you aware of like essentially what's annoying, you know? Well, I, no, I got you. And I, and I, and no, by the way, you were a great, you were a great guest. So I appreciate it. And, and listen, you, you come from a great family. You got a great head in your shoulders. I'm excited to see your kind of career trajectory as you go forward. So uh, I really appreciate the time today and, uh, and chatting through some stuff with me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh yeah. Thank you for having me. I hope, I hope it was interesting. <laughs> Thanks Erica. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the depth and some of the tangents maybe that we went on in terms of talking all things comedy and, and beyond. Um, I appreciate Erica for sharing a lot of insight around the comedy world and all the different you know nuances that go into it. I, I didn't realize half of that stuff. So that's really cool. And I learned a ton. Hopefully you all did as well. Um, go check out Erica online. Go find her on YouTube. Again, her last name is spelled S-P-E-R-A. And I, I, you know, hopefully you guys will uh, watch her career trajectory um, as well as I will um, going forward. As always, any feedback or comments you guys have for this podcast and others, um, I love to hear it. Um, it's the only way I'm going to get better. So you know, shoot me a note over at my website, brianondraco.com, last name O-N-D-R-A-K-O, or on Instagram or Twitter, at Golf. I hope you guys have a tremendous start to 2018. 
Um, really look forward to hearing, you know, how goal setting is going for you guys, how you're achieving um, your goals and some of the things that, you know, some of the opportunities um, that have presented itself because you have you know, decided to say, hey, I'm going full steam ahead. This is my focus. This is what I'm going to accomplish. And really look forward to uh, hearing some of those from you all as we, as we share in the community. So hope you guys have a tremendous start again to 2018, and I hope you have a phenomenal day. We'll talk soon. Just get started.